but the feminist efforts that resonate most strongly for me are those that it seek in some way uh, to take action now on behalf of the future. Hello and welcome to the summer edition of the Fourth Space podcast. The Summer Institute is a collaboration between Concordia's Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling and the Scottish Oral History Center at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland. And this June, hosted at Fourth Space, the theme of the Summer Institute is Embodied Stories, Gender, the Body, and Oral History. The Institute is organized by the former lead co-director of CODES, Dr. Cynthia Hammond. And as a lead-up to the events, Cynthia sat down with two of the participants, Dr. Bimadashka Pukan, Assistant Professor in History and at the School of Public Affairs at Concordia, and Nancy R. Tapias-Torado, currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Faculty of Political Science and Law at UCAM, in order to find out more about their research and connections between their practices. We would like to begin by acknowledging that Fourth Space and Concordia University are located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Cayuncahaga Nation is recognized as custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather. And Chichage, Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. We respect the continued connections with the past, the present, and the future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. So hi, everybody, and welcome. My name is Dr. Cynthia Hammond, and I'm a professor in the Department of Art History at Concordia University, and also a core affiliate of the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling. My two guests today are Dr. Bimadoshka Pukan and Dr. Nancy R. Tapias Torado. I'll introduce Bimadoshka first. Dr. Pukan is of the Saguin First Nation. She earned her PhD in anthropology from the University of Western Ontario in 2019. At the London and Regional Art and Historical Museum, she discovered a 1930s wax cylinder audio collection recorded with Robert Thompson, Elizabeth Thompson, and Dr. Edwin Seaborn. This collection features songs and stories of Anishinaabek and was recorded at a time when it was illegal for Indigenous people in Canada to practice their culture or speak their language. This oral collection became the basis for a major exhibition and publication. And Dr. Pukan is now cross-appointed to First People Studies and the Department of History at Concordia University and is a core affiliate of the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling. Welcome, Bimadashka. And Dr. Nancy R. Tapias Torado is a human rights lawyer, international consultant, and postdoctoral fellow at the Université de Québec à Montréal. In December 2020, Nancy successfully completed her PhD in the Department of Sociology, St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford. Her thesis explores the impact of social movement organizations led by Indigenous women on the practice of corporate actors involved in mega-projects in Latin America. Her postdoctoral project focuses on a case in Canada. And her research comes out of her decade of experience working with Amnesty International as the researcher on the situation of human rights defenders in the Americas, as well as several previous years working in Colombia on gender and human rights issues. Nancy is also an affiliate of CODES. So thank you both very, very much for being with me today. The common thread in your work is the power of the shared story. 
So, um, you know, Nancy, you were talking about how important, how vitally important it is to share stories of success, especially among the Indigenous women leaders that you have been researching. And uh, Bimadasha, you were talking about the crucial um, way that sharing stories is a way of uh, enabling uh, access for sure, but also fostering the health of Indigenous communities. And in both cases, um, you're working with orality, but very differently. And so I was thinking, you know, Nancy, maybe you could speak a little bit about how your work kind of connects with oral history and how that is part of your, or interviews are part of your methodology. Um, Bimadashka, if you could talk about the significance of oral tradition vis-a-vis these recordings that you have. Bimadashka, do you want to go first this time? Sure. It is It is a little bit different in terms of sort of a methodology appropriate for the oral history methodology as opposed to oral tradition. Like it's it's different, right? It, it's not like I'm having a direct interview with somebody, but it sure feels like that. Hearing their voices, but not only their voices, being able to locate pictures. And then so the other thing that I've also been doing is really reaching um, to other types of technology. So I'm not trying to toot the horn of some company out there that's making this cool app, but there is an app out there called MyHeritage. So far it's free, Uh, but I put in, you know, Elizabeth's picture, it animates her picture, and then I put this animated picture with the recording. So now what we're seeing, um, and I'm showing these to my community and getting their feedback at the moment, um, and in real time, it's wonderful, it's, um, you know, one one of the elders said, you know, that's so cool. It looks like they're listening to themselves. These are faces moving. They kind of get a, different expressions at, that kind of show up at different times that the, the recording is playing. It's, it's certainly making them feel even more alive and almost certainly that they're even looking at you at times. It can draw people in um, sort of deeper and more create more sort of an emotional or spiritual connection with the past people can feel like they individually belong, right, in this long, long story. Recognizing, you know, through these old stories that, um, so for example, I'll go and visit another Anishinaabe community. I will share the recordings. I'll tell some of the stories that I, that are on the recordings. The major, like the first story we actually started, I started with and sharing with communities was a story about the death of Tecumseh. And so visiting places like Kettle Point, um, Stony Point, visiting um, Sarnia, Wapole Island, um, Muncie, uh, Moravian Town, where Tecumseh died. Um, visiting these places and sharing this story. I found many people who already knew this exact same story. And so when we then talk about how people know these stories today, they'll say, well, my grandmother told me this story and she was a relative of so-and-so who fought in the war of 1812. And they'll also, and, and somebody else will say, Oh, that person you're talking about is also my great, great, great grandfather. And so we start to see our families um, and our genealogy through the expression of these stories and through the recognition um, that we, we also share those stories in different parts and it, you know, um, of, of such a wide geographical area, even here just in Southern Ontario, through the telling of stories, right? We're repairing our families and recognizing that those genealogical connections um, because stories are shared within families. And so it's actually knowing the story that you can find your way back home. And so it's a really incredibly helpful way to think, especially for genealogists, um, which is a huge part 
I think of a lot of Indigenous people's lives today, particularly around things like the 60s scoop, you know, residential schools where families, lots of families have been, you know, spread out and people are trying to find their way back home. And the records are not good, certainly not around more recent um, colonial policies. So being able to think about genealogies in this way, for example, um, is certainly very helpful to Indigenous people and it helps us repair our, our communities and our relationships. That's just one example. It isn't easy to either to digitize these old recordings because many people, many Indigenous people feel that songs, stories, especially ones that refer to sacred knowledge and medicines, that should not ever be recorded. So this is problematic for our communities to know that these exist. And then for you know my community to say, we want to know, we want to embrace our history. We want to know what happened. It's certainly pushing the envelope, and I'm very proud of my community for making this decision to do this, because I think, again, about all of the people who are, you know, become disconnected over time, um, our young people disconnected from their history. I think about all of the name changes that I've gone through, even in my own lifetime. So I was, when I was born in the 70s, I was an Indian, and I'm very proud to be an Indian to this day. In the 80s, I wasn't allowed to call myself an Indian anymore. That was a bad word. Now I had to call myself Native. Then toward, you know, later 80s, that native became a bad word. Then I was Aboriginal, then Indigenous. So these words just keep changing, but they all still mean the same thing. Uh, and so for young people, they, they need to have access to this information. They need to hear how cool Indigenous people are, especially the Anishinaabe people. You know, we fought like hell in the War of 1812. You know, women went to war just like men did. All of that, you know, all of these really cool and awesome contributions Indigenous people made, Anishinaabe people made, you know, the Haudenosaunee people made all of that stuff is sadly missing and it would so liven up Canadian history and make it so much more vibrant and, and you know, um, impactful and meaningful to us today if all of those stories are told. I'm fascinated by all what you are saying and it resonates a lot to what I heard from the Indigenous women leaders in Latin America. And also, um, I mean, for me, it was fundamental to understand their their stories, their life stories, their life histories. Um, otherwise, it's impossible to understand the magnitude of the problem and the magnitude of the mobilization. I mean, I was looking at something that is not usual in the literature. It is not even usual in the human rights activist world because you have a lots of lots of reports about human rights violations and failures of the state, the lack of investigation, the lack of protection. Maybe you have a discussion about identity in the literature, very important discussions. But then when it when it came to that specific question of um, impact on corporate practice by indigenous women leader uh, communities and mobilizations, there there was very, very limited. So that was a challenge for me. And I had, of course, to combine different qualitative uh, methodologies. And of course, part of doing this PhD was precisely to learn new methodologies so that I could do this, you know, to better understand the situation, the context, everything, and not just focusing on that important part that was not really responding to the bigger uh, problem. But I would like to focus on the importance of the life history sociology. Uh, when I say life history sociology, it does include the life stories, 
plus the contextualization of those life stories. And that is very important because at the very beginning, I had a bit of a debate on why I was going to do something of a regional geographical scope. Normally, it doesn't happen in a PhD. That's what I was, that, that was part of the discussion. I was like, no, I mean, I come from a regional perspective of the human rights practice. I want to keep it because that, from that perspective, is where I see that this problem of this specific community where this indigenous woman, woman is the leader is not just the problem of that locality. It is a global problem and it is replicated in many other problems of Latin America and there are many different patterns. We need to recognize the, the differences, the heterogeneity of these indigenous communities, the diversity of these indigenous women leaders as, as something that is part of what we need to understand and we cannot continue to try to impose one vision of the universe, but actually to understand that there are pluriversal worlds, that there are multiple worlds that work in different ways and in different manners, although there are very common, many common aspects. And for that, the life stories of these indigenous women was very important. And in some of these cases, unfortunately, uh, the woman was um, killed, the indigenous woman leader, and I'm particularly talking in this case of Berta Cáceres, she was killed the day after she granted me the consent or gave me the consent to participate in this study. And I didn't calculate for that, uh, you know, because she was such a, a prominent, important, recognized, protected indigenous woman leader that I thought that would never happen. I mean, of course, it was a massive challenge to then talk about success through life stories with a with a case where the woman was not was was not there. I mean, she was she was killed in, in, in because she was repressed because of her human rights actions in defense of the community and the land and the territory. But as uh, her daughter, who is now the, the leader of the organization in Honduras, explained, the problem is not her death. The problem is that she, uh, her life was taken with violence. And that is something that we need to distinguish. And that was something, um, we, that was something very important for me to understand because in the lives, in the life stories, in the life histories, we also need to understand the life of those who were there and those who were repressed and those who were may not be now with us, but those who path the way for us to understand the life of those who are here with us now. It was a massive challenge, but it also gave me a very different perspective and it kind of confirmed the importance of understanding the life stories to talk about this apparently very abstract and general topic. And this is very much reflected in the methodology and the analytical work that I do. It, was, it would have been not possible if I would haven't done it with life life history sociology and in particular in particular with the with the life stories uh narr narratives of of these women and in fact what you were just saying nancy is a perfect segue to the last question i had on my list um 
which is about um, feminist work as being uh, act activist. Of course, not all feminist work is explicitly activist, uh, but the feminist efforts that resonate most strongly for me are those that it seek in some way uh, to take action now on behalf of the future. So, you know, thinking about oral history, oral tradition, um, obviously these are, are these are practices and methods that look to the past, that listen to the voices uh, that can speak to the past or voices of the past, as in the Madashka's case. Um, so there is this sort of balance between being in the present, looking to the past, seeking to understand the past, but it is really for uh, the benefit of, of a more egalitarian, a more just future. And so I was wondering if you could talk about how for each of you, your research, your research reaches into the past and the present on behalf of the future. We tend to look at the immediacy of things all the time. Um, and we have kind of been taught to do that. Everything is immediate uh, and we need to respond in an immediate way. But Learning from these cases, um, I developed the, the theoretical framework that I call the braided action framework. Um, that means um, when these mobilizations address the abuses committed by state and corporate actors in the context of mega projects, they do involve themselves in a comprehensive way. And for that, I think intersectionality was fundamental to understand what I wanted to, to learn and what I wanted to, to say. These indigenous women uh, are leaders, are visible, they speak with the president, they speak with the corporate director and so on and so forth. But they are always with the children, they have the responsibilities, they are targeted. So they are dealing with everything and many things at the same at the same time in this theoretical framework what i understand is that their struggles need to uh, be understood from their struggle from their territory and that's something for me was very interesting because generally in the literature we talk about the resources of mobilization also in economical and political terms and here they are not talking in those terms. They are talking in terms of the past, the present, and the future of that community in that territory. And when they do it, they position themselves in that much bigger perspective. And that for me, I, I am mestiza. I, I am uh, that means a combination of everything, including indigenous, Afro, colonial, etc., etc. I'm from Colombia. But we, 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 we are not raised in that kind of perspective, right? Um, so that for me was a very important learning to see how they were concerned about what they learned about their ancestors. They were concerned about the territory that their ancestors left to them. They were concerned about what, what, what was happening now and how they were responding to it now. And they were also concerned about them as the ancestors of the future generations. So their responsibility was not just simply for the community now and maybe, you know, accepting this health or educational project so that the extractive project can go on. Uh, they were saying, yeah, that is necessary. 
but that's not what we need. I mean, that's not what we have. We will lose something that is much more bigger than that but for something that is uh, immediate. But of course, there is this, um, they are able to transform the power in the territory into mobilization power. They also have an effective leadership. The indigenous women human rights defenders have an effective leadership as women in that community in very oppressive contexts, but also with the awareness that the institutional and legal framework have also changed. Uh, there, are, there are opportunities and openings for them to advance their struggle. They, of course, use very well and strategically, strategically the human rights uh, framework. And the, these communities and these very strong mobilizations are able to react to the repression, especially when corporations are involved in such a way that the corporation has to understand that this kind of situation cannot go on and that they have to cancel their participation in a very abusive situation. So that, in a nutshell, is more or less uh, what it means, but definitely the intersectionality and the understanding of time and a space from their perspective, from their life stories was fundamental to my work. For me, being able to listen to those recordings really gave me the sense that I was seeing the world through Robert and Elizabeth's eyes. It's a very different feeling, I guess, but even more to go out to the land and to listen to his voice. It's very much to feel re-stitched to the earth, um, re-stitched to that place that chief's point. And even more though, I looking at his life and his wife's life, you know, they resisted the Indian Act. They refused to register as Indians, you know, for all of those things and that embodies being Anishinaabe, you know, they they relied on themselves and their, you know, ingenuity to to survive and adapt to to the situations around them and to to live, continue to live off the land, hunting, trapping, fishing. Um, but they also participated, you know, with their neighbors. You know, um, Elizabeth was, um, she cleaned the the cottages of the local, you know, the, the people who would come in and stay. Um, but she was very much too, you know, um, connected to the local folks and, you know, worked at some of the stores. And, you know, they grew produce and, and they, they had cows and they sold milk to the local folks. They didn't live in a bubble, even though that's sort of the sense we get when we're looking at these old documents, um, sort of just starting to wade into history. Um, even thinking about how we understand Indigenous people um, in Canada today, you know, the, re the reserve system, how that has affected how people think about their identity, how that relates to their connection of the land to the land. It's certainly been changing over time. Um, depending on the situations that people are living. So I agree with Nancy, right? Um, contextualizing, you know, snapshots through time to see how people are changing, the things that they're affected by, the, the thoughts that they have. But at the same time, to still see that we really haven't changed at all. There are still Indigenous people. We're still resisting. We are still holding tightly to our, our culture. Um, you know, we're, we're fighting for our language and, and our right to be on the land and to have, you know, the land exist as it is. And it's our duty to make sure that that's there for the next generation. It's really about all of us. So when I look at the past, it's almost as if we're echoing it today. That's still there. 
Um, I listened to his song and I said to the elders, why is this man singing a song about Jello? He must have really loved Jello because that term that he uses is a word I understand to mean Jello today. And the elder says to me, no, 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 no. He's singing about gelatin. And I'm like, well, how old is gelatin? Well, 1880s. And she says, no. She says, you make gelatin by boiling the antlers and the hooves. Then you can preserve your food and your medicines. And I'm like, oh, like, so I'm echoing, right? We're jello, right? Gelatin. It's, it's still, we're just redoing the past in these new and fantastic ways. Um, but we're still the same. Um, I feel like we really haven't changed at all, honestly. You know, in the future, if and when they look back, I want them to see that, you know, I worked really hard to save something for them if they want to see and listen and hear and learn. And that I picked up the work of my ancestors and carried it forward too. And so when they look back and see the work I've done and the work that Robert and Elizabeth did all the way back through time, I hope that they will see that they too can pick that up and carry it forward for future generations. And so, you know, Nancy talked about this braid. It's very much how I saw my work, right? Where I was picking up these threads from the past, pulling to what I knew from today, pulling it all together in hopes that there's something for somebody else to pick up and to continue to, to finish that braid. Absolutely. I'm with Nancy on that one. Wanda, thank you both so much. I knew both your work before today, but I felt like I, I got to a different level uh, listening to you both. And I just really love how you both spoke about, uh, in different ways, about thinking about the future ancestors. You know, the work now is on behalf of the future ancestors. And as you put it, Bimadashka, lifting up the work of, of the ancestors and carrying it forward and how, for both of you, uh, sharing stories. It's really about the countering of the in this very unjust and nonsensical invisibility of Indigenous voices, Indigenous knowledge, so, uh, solidarity, uh, success, and power. So it was beautiful. Thank you both so much. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. You can contact us by email at info.4 at concordia.ca or on social media at cu4thspace. We'd love to hear from you. The podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced by Anna Voklovec. Editing by Chloe Lalonde and Mackay Hawkrow. Social media and web support by Kari Balmstead. Our theme music is courtesy of Supercontinent. Thank you for listening.